Play's Ark by Octavia Butler, read by Fleabag Anus. Past 11. Within a day of Christian's collapse, Eli had several irrational people huddling around him. They had no idea what was happening to them, but they knew they were in trouble. They were combative, fearful, confused, lustful, driven, guilt-ridden and utterly miserable. They huddled together not knowing what to do. They were fearful of going near outsiders with their painfully enhanced senses and their odd compulsions. But Eli was one of them. More, he was complete. He smelled right to them. And he could see their needs clearer than they could. He could respond to them as they required, offering comfort, sternness, advice, brute strength, whatever was necessary from moment to moment. He found comfort in shepherding them. It was as though, in a very real way, he was making them his family. A family with ugly problems. Mida found both her brothers and her father after her, and she liked them. Was ultimately and alternately lustful and horrified. Her father suffered more than the others. He felt he had gone from patriarch and man of God to criminally depraved pervert unable to keep his hands off his own daughter. Nor could he accept these feelings as his own. They must be signs of either demonic possession or God's punishment for some terrible sin. He and his sons were badly frightened. His wife and daughters-in-law were terrified. Not only were they unable to understand the behaviour of their men, they were confused and embarrassed by their own enhanced sensory awareness. They could smell the men in each other as they never had before. They kept trying to wash away normal scents that would not vanish. They spoke more softly when they realised that the substantial walls no longer stopped sound as well as they had. They discovered they were able to see in the dark whether they wanted to or not. Touching, even accidentally, became a startlingly intense sensory experience. The women ceased to touch each other. They also ceased to touch the men except for their own husbands and Eli. They all developed huge appetites as their bodies changed. Worse, they developed unusual tastes and this frightened them. I'm so hungry, Gwyn told Eli on the day her symptoms became undeniable. She gestured towards a pair of chickens, part of the buoyed flock of thousands. This pair were scratching and pecking at the sand in the shade of the well tank. Suddenly, those things smell so good to me, she said. Can you believe that? They smell edible. They are, Eli said softly. It had been necessary for him to supplement his diet with one or two of them and with several eggs every night when the family was asleep. But how could they smell so good when they're raw? Gwyn asked. And alive. Living prey smelled wonderful, Eli knew. But Gwyn was not ready to face that yet. Go raid the refrigerator, he told her. Maybe Junior is hungry. She looked down at her pregnant belly and tried to smile, but she was clearly frightened. He did what he never would have done before this day. He took her arm and he led her back to the house, to the kitchen. There he saw to it that she ate. She seemed to appreciate the attention. Something feels wrong, she said at once. Not with the baby, she added quickly when Eli looked alarmed. I don't know. This food tastes too sweet or too salty or too spicy or too something. It tasted okay yesterday, but now... When I just started to eat, I thought I was going to be sick. That doesn't feel right either. It's not really nauseating. It's just, I don't know. Bad, he asked, knowing the answer. Not really, just different, she said. She shook her head, picked up a piece of cold fried chicken. This is okay, but um, 
I do think the ones running around outside would probably be better. Eli said nothing. Since his return to Earth, he knew he preferred his food raw and unseasoned. It tasted better. Yet he would go on eating cooked food. It was a human thing that he clung to. His changed body seemed able to digest almost anything. It tempted him by making non-human behaviour pleasurable, but most of the time it let him decide, let him choose to cling on to as much of his humanity as he could. Though certain jives at certain times inevitably went out of control. Ada brought him her symptoms and her suspicions not long after he left Gwyn. This is your doing, she said. Everybody's crazy except you. You've done something to us. Yes, he admitted, breathing in the scent of her. She had some idea now what she was doing to him just by coming near. What have you done? she demanded. What do you feel? he asked, facing her. She blinked, turned away frightened. What have you done? she repeated. It's a disease, he said, taking a deep breath. He'd never imagined that telling her would be easy. He'd already decided to be as straightforward as possible. It's an an extraterrestrial disease, he continued. It will change you, but no more than I'm changed. A disease? She frowned. You came back sick and gave us a disease? Did you know you had it? Yes, he said. And you knew we could catch it? She asked. He nodded. And you gave it to us deliberately? No, not deliberately. But you knew. Mida, he wanted to touch her, take her by the shoulders and reassure her. But if he began to touch her, she, he would not be able to stop. Mida, you'll be all right. I'll, I'll take care of you. I stayed to take care of you. You came here to give us a disease, she said. No, he turned his head towards the well tank. No, I came to get water and to get food. But you... I couldn't die, he said. I wanted to, but I couldn't. I can go out of my mind. I can become an animal, but I can't kill myself. What about the others, she asked. The crew? All dead, like I told you, like your bastard news said. The disease took some of them before we found out how to help them. A half-truth. A deletion. Deesa and two others had died in spite of the help they got. He continued to speak. The others died here, with the ship. Someone, maybe more than one, apparently managed a little sabotage. I wish they'd done it in space, or back on proxy too. How do you know someone sabotaged the ship? She asked. Maybe it was an accident. I don't know. I don't remember. I blacked out, he said. How did he get off the ship? I don't know, he said. I have on-off memories of running, of hiding. I know I took shelter in mountains of volcanic rock, lived in a half-collapsed lava tunnel for three days and two nights. I nearly starved to death. People can't starve in just three days, Media said. We can, Eli said. You and me, now that we're changed. She only stared at him. It was raining, he continued. I remember we deliberately chose to land in a storm in the middle of nowhere so we could get away before anyone found out what we were. Even with speeded up reflexes, increased strength and enhanced senses, we nearly disintegrated and then crashed. We kept them from shooting us down by talking. God, we talked. The brave heroes giving all the information they could before they crashed. Before they died. We could no more imagine ourselves dying than we could imagine not coming straight into Earth. It was a magnet for us in more ways than one. All those people, all those billions of uninfected people. You came to infect everybody, she whispered. We had to come. Eli said. 
we couldn't not come it was impossible but we thought we could control it once we were here we thought we could take only a few people at a time a few isolated people that's why we chose such an empty place why would you think you could have any any luck controlling yourselves here in the middle of all the billions if you couldn't control yourselves in Proxima Centauri 2? She asked. We weren't sure, he said. Maybe it was just something we told ourselves to keep from going completely crazy. On the other hand, he looked at her, glad she was alive and well enough to be her, to be here questioning and to be her questioning, demanding self. On the other hand, maybe we were right. I don't want to leave this place to reach anyone else. No, not now. Not yet. You've done enough damage here, Mida said. Do you want to leave? He asked. Eli, I live here. Doesn't matter, he said. Do you want to go to a hospital to see if someone can figure out a cure? She looked uncomfortable, a little frightened. I was wondering why you didn't do that. I can't, he said. Can you? What do you mean you can't, she asked. Well, go if, go if you can. I'll, I'll try not to stop you. I'll try. This is my home, she said. I don't have anywhere else to go. Mida, why don't you leave? You're the cause of all of this. You're the problem. Shall I go, Mida? Silence. He had frightened and confused her, touched a brand new tender spot that she might not have discovered on her own for a while. She wanted to stay with her own kind. Being alone was terrifying, mind-numbing, he knew. You went away, he said, she said, reading him unconsciously. You left the rest of the crew. Not deliberately, he said. Do you ever do anything deliberately? She came a little closer to him. You got out, only you got out. He realised where she was headed and he did not want to hear her, but she continued. The one sure way you could have known where to run to and when to run as if you were the saboteur. His hand gripped each other. They had gripped. If they had gripped anything else at the moment, they would have crushed it. Do you think I haven't thought about that, he said. I've tried to remember. If I were you, Mida said, I wouldn't want to remember. But I've tried, he said. Not that it makes any difference in the end. The others died and I should have died. If I did it, I killed my friends and then I made their deaths meaningless. If someone else did it, my survival made the sacrifice meaningless anyway. The dogs died, she said. Remember? One of them was hurt, but not bad. The other wasn't hurt at all, but they died. We couldn't understand it. I'm sorry, Eli said. They died, Mida said. Maybe we're going to die. You won't die, he said. I'm going to take care of you. She touched his face, finally, tracing the few premature lines there. You aren't sure, she said. My touch hurts you, doesn't it? He said nothing. His body had gone rigid. Its centre, its focus, was where her fingers caressed. It must hurt you to hold back, she said. Your holding back hurts me. There were agonising seconds of silence. You probably were the saboteur, she said. You're strong enough to hurt yourself, so you thought you were strong enough to kill yourself. I want you, but I wish you hadn't succeeded. I wish you had died. He had no more strength of will at all. He seized her, dragged her behind the well, and pushed her to the ground. She was not surprised, did not struggle. In fact, with her own drives compelling her, she compelled him. But it was not only passion or physical pain that caused her to scratch and tear at his body with her nails. Present 12 When Oral Ingraham grasped Rain's hand, 
and led her from Mida's house, she held her terror at bay by planning her escape. She would go either with her father and Kira, or she could go without them. If she had to leave them behind, she would send back help to them. She had no idea which law enforcement group police this wilderness area, but she would find out. All that mattered now was escaping, living long enough to escape and escaping. She was terrified of Ingraham, certain that he was crazy, that he would kill her if she was not careful. If she committed herself to a poorly planned escape attempt and he caught her, he would certainly kill her. She noticed no trembling in the hand that held her arm. There were no facial tics now, no trembling anywhere. She did not know whether that was a good sign or not, but it comforted her. It made him seem more normal, less dangerous. As they walked, she looked around, memorising the placement of the animal pens, the houses, the large chicken houses, and something that was probably a barn. The buildings and large rocks could be excellent hiding places, she thought. But people were spooky. She saw only a few, all adults. They were busy feeding the animals, gardening, repairing tools, etc. One woman sat in front of a house, cleaning a chicken. Rain watched with interest. She planned to be a doctor eventually, and was pleased that the sight did not repel her. What did repel her was the way people looked at her. Each person she passed paused for a moment to stare at her. They were all scrawny and their eyes seemed larger than normal in their gaunt faces. They looked at her with hunger or lust. She looked, they looked at her so intently that she felt as though they had reached for her with their thin fingers. She couldn't imagine them. She could imagine them all grabbing her. At one point, an animal whizzed past, something lean and brown and cat-like, running at a startling speed. It was much bigger than a house cat. Rain stared after it, wondering what it had been. Show off, Ingram muttered. But he was smiling. The smile made him look years younger, less intense, saner. Rainer dared to question him. What was that? she asked. Jacob, Ingram answered. Stark naked as usual. Naked? Rain said, frowning. What was it? He led her onto the porch of an unpainted but otherwise complete wooden house. There he stopped. Not it, he said. Him. That was one of Mila's kids. Now, shut up and listen. Rain closed her mouth, swallowing her protests, but the running thing had certainly not been a child. Our kids look like that, he said. You may as well get used to it, because yours are going to look like that too. It's a disease that we all have, and now you have it, or soon you'll get it. <clears throat> there isn't a damn thing you can do about it. With no further explanation, he took her into the house and turned her over to a tall, pregnant woman whose hair was almost long enough for her to trip over. Lupe, the woman's name was. She was sharp-featured, with thin arms and legs. In spite of her pregnancy, she clearly belonged among these people. She wore a kaftan much like Kira's. Her pregnant body looked like a balloon beneath it. She reached for Rain with thin, grasping hands. Rain drew back, but Ingraham still held her. She could not escape. The woman caught Rain's other arm and held it in a grip just short of painful. The thinness was deceptive. These people were all abnormally strong. Don't be afraid, the woman said with a slight accent. We have to touch you, but we won't hurt you. Her voice was the friendliest thing Rain had heard since her capture. Rain tried to relax, tried to trust the friendly voice. Why do you have to touch me, she asked. Because you're not one of us yet, Lupe said. You will be. Be still. 
She reached up so quickly that Rain had no chance to struggle and made scratches across Rain's left cheek. Rain squealed in surprise and pain and too late jerked her head back. What did you do that for? she demanded. They ignored her. You're in a hurry, Ingraham said to Lupe. Eli says the sooner the better with this one and her father, Lupe told him. While he takes his time with his, treats her like she'll break if he touches her, he said. She might, Lupe said. We've never had anyone who was already sick. Yeah, said Ingraham. I got us a healthy one, though. They talked about her as though she was not there, Rain thought, or as though she was no more than an animal he could not understand. She tried to pull free when Lupe took her away from Ingraham and sat her down on a long wooden bench. There, finally, she released Rain and stood before her studying Rain's angry, hostile posture. Lupe shook her head. I lied, she told Rain. We are going to hurt you. You're going to fight us every chance you get, aren't you? You're going to make us hurt you. The corners of her mouth turned downward. Too bad. I can tell you from experience it won't help. It just might kill you. Rain glanced at the woman's claws and said nothing. Lupe was as crazy as Ingraham and even more unpredictable with her soft words and sharp nails. Rain was terrified of her and furious at her for inspiring her fear. Why should one thin-limbed pregnant woman be so frightening? One thin-limbed, startlingly strong pregnant woman who sat down beside Rain and caressed Rain's arm absently. Rain looked at Ingraham, actually found herself looking for help from the man who had held a gun to her head. To her utter humiliation, he laughed. Rain's vision blurred and for an instant she saw herself smashing his head with a rock. Suddenly Lupe grasped her chin, turned her head towards her until she could see only Lupe, hear only Lupe. Chica, she said. Nothing has ever truly hurt you before, Lupe said. Nothing has ever threatened you enough to make you believe you could die. Not even your sister's illness. So now you must learn a hard lesson very quickly. No, don't say anything yet, just listen. You think I'm threatening you, but I'm not. At least not the way you believe. He has given you a disease that can kill you. That's what you need to understand. Some of our differences are signs of that disease. You must decide whether it's better to live with such signs or to die. Listen. Rain listened. She heard about Eli and the clay's ark and Proxima Centauri too. She listened, but she believed almost nothing. You know, Lupe said when she'd been talking for perhaps half an hour, sometimes I look around and everything seems to be the wrong colour. The sun is too bright and not red. I feel surprised that it isn't red. I couldn't figure out what was going on when it first happened. It scared me, and but when I told Eli, he said Proxy was red. A cool red star with its three planets hugging in close around it. He bought some red light bulbs and needles and put them in his den. They're not right either, really, but every now and then I go over there. Every now and then everyone goes over there and stays for a little while. It relaxes us. When things start to smell funny to you and you start to feel like you want to leave, you want to eat a live rabbit or rape a man, we'll take you over there. It helps. It keeps you from jumping out of your skin. I've got a better solution for that last feeling, Ingraham said, grinning. He'd gone away and come back. Now he sat watching Rain in a way that made her very, very, very nervous. In spite of the huge meal that Rain had seen him eat, he was munching nuts from a dish on the coffee table. Lupe looked at him and smiled, all teeth. You touch her like that and I'll cut your thing off, she said. Ingraham last got up and kissed her and stood before her smiling. 
You want me to get one of the kids for her to see? Get Jacob if you can catch him, said Lupe. Okay, said Ingraham, walking out. Looking after him, as he left, Rain sorted out two impressions in her head. First, that Lupe meant her threat absolutely. She would kill Ingraham if she caught him with Rain or with any other woman. Second, he knew it. He enjoyed her possessiveness. And thus, she deduced Rain was probably safe from him in one way at least. Thank God. You're bright, Lupe said to her softly. Very bright, but stubborn. You think you can choose your realities, but you can't. Rain made herself meet the woman's eyes. Reality, she said with contempt. My father is a doctor. He really could have gone out on the ark. He has valuable training, yet was within the age range when he left it, and he was in good physical shape. Would you believe me if I told him, if I told you that he was a fugitive astronaut? Not if you're his kid, honey. Nobody with the young kids went. No white guy married to a black woman went either. Things never got that loose. And no ignorant con artist who can barely speak English went, Rain snapped. If Eli's convinced you that he had, and he wasn't on the ark, you're no smarter than he is. Surprisingly, Lupe smiled. You're a lot less tolerant than I would have expected of you, she said. A lot less observant too, but it doesn't matter. Here's Jacob. Ingraham came into the room carrying a small, large-eyed large -eyed brown boy. <clears throat> the boy was slender, without childish pudginess, but not bone-thin like the adults. He wore a pair of blue shorts, but no shirt. He was startlingly beautiful, Rain realised, when he turned in Ingraham's arms and faced her. But there was something odd about him. He seemed nothing like the thing that had run past her outside. But he did appear to be built for speed, an odd, slender little boy. Come on, Nino, Lupe said. Let's show you off a little bit. Come and sit with us. The boy scrambled against Ingraham, braced and leapt to the bench on which Lane and Lupe sat. He landed next to Rain, who startled violently. Jacob had leapt like a cat and landed on all fours. His legs and his arms were clearly intended to be used this way. He was a quadruped. He had hands, however, and fingers. He looked at them, following Rain's eyes. They work, he said in a clear, slightly deeper than average child's voice. They work like yours. He grasped her arm with the small, startlingly strong, hard hands. Sharp little nails dug into her flesh and she drew away. Squatting, the boy sniffed his hands and then wiped them on his shorts. You smell, he told Rain and leapt off the bench and went onto it again next to Lupe. Lupe laughed. Shame, Jacob, that's not a nice thing to say. She does, the boy insisted. She's not one of us yet, Lupe said. She will be soon, then she'll smell different. Rain completely passed over the insult in her fascination with the boy, the whatever it was. Can he walk on his feet alone? she asked Lupe. Not so well, Lupe answered. He tries sometimes because we all do, but it's not natural for him. He gets tired and even sore if he keeps at it. And it's too slow for him. You like to move fast, don't you, Nino? She lifted the strange little boy up and placed it onto her lap. Jacob immediately put his ear to her belly. I can hear it, he announced. Hear the baby? Rain asked. It's heartbeat, Lupe said. He can hear it without putting his ear to me. It's just a game he likes. He says this one is going to be a little girl. He doesn't understand how he can tell, but he knows. Smell, maybe. Guessing, maybe, Rain said. Oh, no. He, he does know, Lupe said. He called it right four times so far. Now women come and ask him. But, but Lupe... Stop for a moment, Lupe said, then to a boy. 
Then to the boy, okay, Nino, back out to play. Take some nuts. The boy leapt down from her lap. Trotted on all fours to the china nut dish on the plain homemade coffee table. He took a handful of nuts, stuffed them into the pocket of his shorts and zipped it shut. He seemed to have no trouble using his hands. They were smaller than Rain thought they should have been, but he was less clumsy with them than a normal child would have been. He was certainly faster than any normal child, probably faster than most adults. All his movements were smooth and grateful and graceful, a smooth and graceful four-year-old child. He stopped in front of her, beautiful child head, sleek cat-like body, a, mini a miniature sphinx. What would it be when it grew up? Not a man, certainly. I don't like you either, Jacob said. You're fat, and you smell, and you're ugly. Jacob, Lupe said, standing up and starting towards him. Vayase, ahora mismo, outside. Jacob bounded out the door. No, human beings did not move that way, Rain thought. How had any disease made such a creature of a child? <clears throat> He's telling the truth, you know, Lupe said. You do look fat and old to him, though you're not, and you smell different. Also, he couldn't miss how much you were repelled by him. I just don't understand how such a thing could happen, Rain whispered. It's the disease, I told you. We don't even have a name for it. The disease of the Glaze Ark. All our children are like Jacob. All? Rain swallowed. All animals, all things. Shit, Lupe said. You're worse than I was. You should be more tolerant. He's a little boy. Rain stared at her pregnant be belly. Oh yes, Lupe said. This child will be like Jacob, too. Just as my son is. Beautiful and different. And Chica, your children are going to be like him, too. The disease doesn't go away, it just settles in and stays with you and you pass it on to strangers and to your children. Or you get treatment, Rain said. What the hell are you doing sitting in the middle of the desert giving birth to monsters and kidnapping people? Lupe just smiled. Eli says we're preserving humanity. I agree with him. We are. Our own humanity and everyone else's because we let people alone. We isolate ourselves as much as we can. And the people outside stay alive and healthy. Most of them. Most, Rain said with big tears. Most for now. But even now, not me. Not my father or my sister. And what about you? You don't belong here either, do you? I do now, Lupe said. Before, I was a private hauler. You know, good money if you survive. My truck broke down all the way over on I-15. And Eli caught me outside. When I realised what he had done to me, I thought I would bide my time and kill him. Now I think I'd kill anyone who tried to hurt him. He's, he's family now. Why? demanded Rain. If you really believe he's the cause of this sickness, and you know he's the guy who kidnapped you? Rain shook her head. Didn't you have a husband or anything back in the real world? What's your business? What about your business? I was divorced, Lupe said. I lived in the truck on the road. She paused. Her voice became wistful. I do miss the road. I almost got killed more times than I like to think about, but I do miss it. Rain listened without comprehension. A woman who could be nostalgic for work that nearly kept killing her could probably make any irrational adjustment, she thought. I didn't have anybody, Lupe said. We lived in a cesspool. My parents' house got caught up in a gang war, got bombed. One of the gangs wanted to make a no-man's land, you know. They needed to put some space between their territory and their rival's territory. 
So they bombed some houses, torched others. They got their no man's land in the end. My parents, my brother and a lot of other people got killed. My ex-husband, he's a wino somewhere, who cares? So I was alone. I'm not alone here. I'm part of something and, and it feels good. Even Aurel. There was a time when I carried two guns plus on the truck's usual, plus the truck's usual defences. And defensively, my truck was a goddamn tank, all to fight off people like Aurel. Bike packers, car bombs, rogue truckers. Every slimy maggot crawling over what's left of the highway system. But they're not all as bad as I thought. Aurel isn't. Take away the gang and give him something better and he turns into a person. He turns into a man. Rain listened with interest in spite of herself. She could not understand Lupe's interest in a man like Ingraham, but she was beginning to respect Lupe. Rain liked to think of herself as tough, but she had an uncomfortable suspicion she could not have survived Lupe's life. She had never been alone. She had never been without someone who would help her if she could not help herself. Now none of the people who cared about her could help her. Her father, her sister, two sets of grandparents, and on her mother's side, a number of aunts, uncles, cousins, only a few of them were close to her, but every one of them could be counted on to come running if a member of the family needed help. Now the only ones who knew of her need needed help as badly as she did. Past 13. Gabriel Boyd died. Death was a relief to him, an end to more than physical suffering. Alive, he had been frightened, confused, full of self-loathing for feelings he could neither control nor understand. He had had to be put to bed because he was no longer able to keep his balance. He overcompensated, first for walking up and down steps, then for negotiating the irregularities of the ground outside, finally for walking over a level surface, for cruel, for nothing more. As his sensitivity increased, he began to react with terror to slight sounds and cringe at the slightest touch. Most food, even the smell of food, nauseated him, but he was always hungry. Eli fed him ground, unseasoned raw meat, fresh vegetables and fruit. He ate a little of this and kept it down. His eyes had to be covered since any slight movement frightened him. His movements, even in bed, were either exaggerated and awkward or fine and incredibly controlled. He could no longer feed himself. Then he could no longer eat or drink, even if fed. On the Ark, he would have been fed intravenously, but no member of the Ark crew who reached this stage had survived, reinfection or no. Eli and a weeping leader cared for him. Then for his wife, whose symptoms also worsened. He lost control of all his bodily functions. He urinated and defecated, spat and drooled. His body twitched and convulsed and sweated profusely. He probably shed enough disease organisms to contaminate the city. On the fourth day, following the onset of symptoms, he died, probably of dehydration and exhaustion. On life support, he would have lasted longer, but in the end, the end would have been the same. Eli was glad there were no facilities for prolonging the old man's suffering. Edith's mother died a day later, as did her two brothers and a tiny, perfectly formed nephew born three months too soon. Mida herself never really sickened. She became more and more despondent as her family died, became almost suicidal. But her physical symptoms remained bearable. She was learning to use her enhanced senses, of, or at least tolerate them. And in spite of all the horror, 
every night and sometimes during the day she went to Eli or he came to her. Without discussion he moved into her room. She did not understand how she could touch him with the disaster he had brought to her family happening all around her. Yet she found comfort with him and although she did not know it she gave him comfort, eased his guilt by continuing to live. They leaned on each other desperately and somehow held each other up. Her father realised what they were doing before he died. He first cursed her, called her a harlot. Then he apologised and wept. He seized Eli's wrist with the only, only the ghost of the great strength he should have possessed. Take care of her, he whispered. It was more a command than a request. Even more softly, he said. I know it might have been me or one of her brothers, if not you. Take care of her, please. To Eli's own surprise, he wept. He was trapped in a vise of guilt. A vise of guilt and grief. He was alive because of the old man. Gabriel Boyd had given him a home and thus kept him from drifting into a town and spreading the disease. It was his grandfather all over again. A stern, godly old man who took in strays. A dangerous practice these days, taking in strays. He worried about Mida, worried that he might not be able to take care of her, that she might die in spite of her apparent adjustment. That would make him a complete failure. That would drive him away even if her sisters-in-law lived. In his mind, only her living would ease his questioning of his own humanity. He'd stay to save her. Now she must live, or he was a monster, utterly evil, completely without control of the thing that had made him monstrous. So she lived. He stayed with her constantly during the period when she might try to take her life. Later, when the organism took firmer hold, suicide would be impossible. But now, for now, he watched her. <laughs> Most of the time she hated him, at least as much as she needed him. She lost weight, her clothing sagged on her. She gained strength and when she hit him it hurt. Guiltily he could not strike back. She helped him wash the corpses of her parents, her brothers and her nephew. For him it was a penance that he would not commit himself to avoid. For her it was a goodbye. They wrapped the bodies in clean sheets took them to a place that she had chosen. There together they buried the ground and dug the graves. The sisters-in-law did not help, but they crept out to stand red-eyed over the graves that Eli read, as Eli read from Lamentations and from Job. They cried, and Mida said a prayer, and it was over. Later, Mida tried to comfort her sisters-in-law. They were older than she, but she had more, a more dominant personality, and they tended to, to refer to her except in one important way. They preferred to be comforted by Eli. Their drives were as much, as much increased as Mida's, and they had no men. Mida understood their need and resented it. She, Even when she hated Eli, she did not want to share him. Her possessiveness seemed to surprise her, but it did not surprise Eli. He would have been equally possessive of her if there had been another man on the ranch. He saw to it that Gwyn and Lorene were reinfected until he was certain that they would live. Then he avoided temptation as best he could until Mida was completely pregnant. And her pregnancy did comfort her. She did not understand why. She had been isolated and sheltered by her parents, brought up to believe that having a child outside marriage was a great sin. But her pregnancy relieved tension that she had not recognised until it was gone. It also relieved tension that she had recognised all too clearly. I'm going to sleep with Lorene, 
Eli told her one day. It's her time. Ada rubbed her stomach and looked at him. I don't want you to, she said. He could see that she meant the words, but he heard a little passion behind them. She had some idea what he was feeling. She knew positively what Louis was feeling. She wanted to hold on to him, but she'd already resigned herself to him, his going. There are no other men, he said unnecessarily. Will you come back? She asked. Yes, he said at once, then more tentatively. Shall I? Yes, she said, matching his tone. She put her hand to her stomach. This is your child too. She did not know how much he wanted to be a father to it. He had been afraid that she would do what she could to make that difficult. We need men for Lorene and Gwyn, she said dispassionately. He nodded. He was glad that she had said it. She would share the responsibility this time when they infected two more men. He had known all along what had to be done. He had not thought about that the women were ready to hear it until now. The other deaths had seemed too fresh in their minds, without meaning to. And without meaning to, he had enjoyed the horror and feeling the three women had given him. When he realised how much he enjoyed it, he wanted to look for other men at once. He found any feeling that would have been repugnant before his illness. He found any feeling that would have been repugnant before his illness, but that was now attractive to be sus sus suspicious to him. He would not give the organism another fragment of himself, a superhumanity he preferred to himself. He would not let it make him feel like he was a stud with three mares. He would make a colony and enclave on the ranch instead. A human gathering, not a herd. A human gathering. A gathering headed where God knew. But wherever they were headed, since they were not going to die, they had to grow. Present 14 Lupe and Ingraham shared reign with another newcomer introduced to Stephen Fashinero. Fashinero. No one explained what he was doing there. He offered to help with the wall painting when Lupe and Ingraham got out the paint and the brushes, real brushes, but Rain did not get the impression he lived with them. He touched her from time to time as Lupe and Ingraham did. After a couple of hours of this, she stopped cringing and trying to avoid their fingers. They were not actually hurting her. There was no more scratching. They were endurable. Eventually, the reason for Stephen's presence became clear to her. The painting had been going on for a while when Lupe asked her if she wanted to help. She shook her head. She knew the request might really be a command, but she decided to wait and see. Lupe sh simply shrugged, turned her back to the wall that she was working on. The two men were on their way to work on the outside of the house. Stephen stopped, looked at her and then at Lupe. Do you suppose she'll be this lazy when she has her own house? He asked. She smiled. That one isn't lazy, she said. She's sitting there cooking up an escape plan. Startled, Rain turned to look at her. Lupe laughed, but Stephen seemed concerned. He put down a can of paint and came over to Rain. He was a small, brown man, so heavily tanned that he and Rain were about the same colour. He was clean-shaven and long-haired, his black hair pulled back and loosely bound with a rubber band. Under different circumstances, she would have welcomed attention from him, even been a little overwhelmed. He was as thin as everyone else on the ranch. He was also one of the best-looking men that Rain had ever seen anywhere in the world. Somehow his thinness did not detract from his good looks, yet he had the disease. She braced herself against the renewed offence of his touch. But this time he did not touch her. He clearly wanted to, but he held back. If you come with me, she said, he said, I won't touch you. 
Do I have a choice? She asked. Yes, but I'd like you to come. I want to talk to you. Rain glanced at Lupe, saw that she was paying no attention. Stephen did not seem fearsome. He was her size and not afflicted with any twitches or trembling. She sensed none of Ingraham's quick temper behind the quiet black eyes. More important, she was learning absolutely nothing sitting in Lupe's living room and being stroked like an animal whenever someone thought of her. She needed to look around to find a way out of this place. <laughs> she stood up, looked at Stephen, waiting for him to lead the way. We're going outside, he said. I'll show you around while we talk. Don't run, though. If you run, I'll have to hurt you, and that's the last thing I'd want to do. There was no special warmth in his voice when he said these last words, but Rain was suddenly suspicious. Breaking his word, Stephen took her arm and led her out. She did not mind, really. At least this time he had a reason to touch her. He took her to a corral where two cows and a half-grown heifer, heifer were eating hay. Far off to one side, there was another corral from which a bull stared at the cows. This place is full of babies and pregnant women, he said. We need plenty of milk. A heifer came over to them and he rubbed its broad face. You can get a disease from drinking raw milk, Rain said. We know that, Stephen said. We're careful, although we're not sure we have to be. We don't seem to get other diseases once we have this one. It's not worth it, Rain said. He looked surprised at her reaction. Rain, he said. You'll be all right. Young women don't have anything to worry about. It's older women and older men who take the risk. So I've heard, Rain said. That means my father could die. And young or not, my sister will probably die sooner than she would have without you people. And me. What do I do if I live? Give birth to one little animal after another? He turned around and said that she faced him. Our children are not animals, he said. We're not interested in hearing them called animals. She called three of them. Noah all surprised that he let her. I never cared much for the idea of aborting children, she said. But if I thought for a moment that I was carrying another Jacob, I'd be willing to abort it with an old wire coat hanger. She had managed to horrify him, which was what she'd intended. She was completely serious, and he of all people had to know it. You know they planned to give you to me, he said softly. I suspected, she said, so I wanted you to know how I felt. Your feelings will change, Miss Stephen said. Ours did. The disease, the disease changes you. Makes you like having four-legged kids? Makes you like having kids, Stephen said. Makes you need to have them, and when they come, makes you love them. I wonder, what's the chemical composition of love? Human babies are ugly, even when they're normal, but we love them. If we didn't, the species would die. Our babies here, well, if we didn't love them, if we would, weren't damn protective of them, the Clay's-Ark organism on Earth would die. It isn't intelligent, but God, is it built to survive. I won't change, Rain said. He smiled and shook his head. You're a strong girl, but you don't even know what you're talking about. He paused. You don't have to come to me until you want to. We're not rapists here, and you, well, you're interesting right now, but not as interesting as you will be. What are you talking about, she asked. He put his arm around her. He was surprised that the gesture did not offend her. They'll find out eventually. For now, it just doesn't matter. They walked away from the hayfer and she mooed after them. Cows don't seem to get the disease, he commented. 
dogs get it and it kills them. It kills all the types of cold-blooded things that have bitten us. Snakes, scorpions, bugs, insects. There may not be anything on earth that can penetrate our flesh and come away unchanged. Except our own kinds, of course. I can't prove it, but I'll bet those cars, those cows are carriers. The scope attachment of my father's bag could probably tell you that, Rain said. Though you may not be in any mood to use it. I can use it, he said. She looked at his face, lineless in spite of his thinness. He was the youngest person she'd seen so far, in his early twenties, perhaps, or his late teens. You were in school before, weren't you, she guessed. He nodded. College. Music major. I got a little sidetracked taking biology and chemistry classes, though. What were you going to be, she asked. A concert violinist, he said. I've been playing since I was four. And now you're willing to give it all up and move back into the 20th century, she asked. He stopped at a large wooden bin, opened it, and watched as a couple of dozen, as two dozen chickens came running and gathered around, clucking. He opened one of the six metal barrels, took out a large crack, a large handful of cracked corn and threw it to them. This was clearly what they'd been waiting for. The chickens began pecking up the corn quickly before the newcomers who came in from every direction could take it from them. Stephen threw a little more of the corn and then closed the bin. He said, it's almost sunset. You'd think they'd be too busy deciding where they were going to roost and to watch the bin. Don't you, but don't you care that you're never going to be a musician, she demanded. He looked down at his hands and rubbed them together. Yes, I do care. His voice had dropped low into his own private pain. She stood silent, feeling awkward for once, not knowing what to say. Then he looked up at her, smiled faintly. It was an old passion, he said. I haven't touched a violin for months. I didn't know what that would be like. What is it like? she asked. He began to walk so that she almost missed his answer. It feels like an amputation, he whispered. She walked beside him, let him lead her out to the garden, passing the wagoner on the way. The sight of it jarred her, reminded her that she should be watching for a new way of escape. Did he ever see food growing? She asked. He asked, bending to turn to a deep green watermelon, turning it over and looking at its yellow bottom. Right, he commented. You wouldn't believe how sweet they are. He was distracting. He moved from one subject to another, drawing her with him, keeping her emotionally involved in whatever he chose. I don't care about food growing, she said. Listen, Stephen, my father is a good doctor. Let him examine you. Maybe the disease can be cured. If he can't if he if he can't help you himself, he'll know who can. But we don't leave the ranch, Rain, he said, except to bring in supplies and converts. But you'll never be a violinist here, she said. I'll never be a violinist full stop, he said. Don't you think I know that? He never raised his voice. His expression changed only slightly, but she felt as though he had shouted at her. She watched him with fascination. Why? she asked. What's holding you here? I belong here, he said. These are my people now. Why? Because they gave you a disease? Yes, he said. That doesn't make any sense, she said angrily. It will, he said quietly. His apparent passivity infuriated her. You're probably nothing as a violinist, she said. You probably didn't have anything to lose. That's why you don't even give a shit. His face froze over. If you want to get rid of me, he said, go on saying things like that. 
In that moment, she realised she did not want to get rid of him. He seemed human, and the others seemed less that. Just a few minutes with him had made her want to cling to him and avoid the stick people and the animal children who were her alternatives. But she would not cling to him. She would not cling to anyone. I don't care what you do, she said. I don't understand why anyone would want to stay here, and you haven't said anything to help me understand. Nothing I could say would really help, he sighed. When your symptoms start, you'll understand, that's all, but just try this. I was married. My wife played the piano, played it better than I played the violin. We had a son who was only a year old when I saw him last. If I stay here, my wife can go on playing the piano. The world will go on being a place where people can have time for music and beauty. My son can grow up and do whatever he wants to. My parents will have some money and, and they'll see that he has a chance. But if I try to turn myself in, I know that I'll lose control and I'll spread the disease. I would begin the process of turning the world into a place with no time for anything but survival. And in the end, Jacob and his kind would inherit everything. My son will, will never live to be a man. Rain was silent for several seconds when he finished. She found herself wanting to say something comforting, and that was insane. You sacrificed my family to spare yours, she said bitterly. He pulled an ear of, cor of corn from its stalk, husked it and began to eat it raw. He tore at it like an animal, not looking at her. Someone sacrificed you too, she said finally. I know that, but Jesus, isn't it time to break the chain? You and I could get away together, we could get help. You haven't heard me, he said quietly. I knew you wouldn't. Listen. We're infectious for as much as two weeks before we start to show symptoms. Except for people like you who won't have any who won't have two weeks between infection and symptoms. How many people do you think the average person could infect in two weeks of city life? How many could my victims infect? And with an extraterrestrial organism. There's no cure rain. And by the time one is found, if one can be found, it will probably be too late. It isn't only my family I'm protecting. It's everyone. It's the future. As Eli told me, the organism is a damned, efficient invader. I don't believe you, she said. I know. Nobody believes at first. I didn't. Rain walked away from him as he picked a tomato and began to eat. He never washed anything. Ate them as they grew out of the dirt. Rain had never seen food growing this way before, but it did not impress her. She wondered whether they fertilised it with the contents of the outhouse and the animal pens. It was just the sort of filthy, anachronistic thing they might do. She climbed some rocks, huge, rough, rounded mounds of granite, and stood on top, staring down. To her surprise, she saw the road winding below. Then Stephen was beside her. She started violently to find him there in that space that had been empty a second before. She must have leapt up, almost the way Jacob would leap. We can all jump, he said. We can run pretty fast too. You should remember that. I wasn't trying to get away, she said. Not yet, he said, but just remember anyway. He paused. Do you know how they caught me seven months ago? You've only been here seven months? I drove right into their settlement, he said. I'd gone to see my folks in Albuquerque, and on my way home I decided to do some exploring. I discovered a mountain road that wasn't on my maps, and I thought I'd find out where it led. I guess I found out. Why were you driving, Rain asked. You should have flown. I loved to drive. It was kind of like a hobby. I bet your father has the same affliction. 
Yeah, she said quietly. He has a Porsche and a Mercedes at home. You won't even drive them outside the enclave. A Porsche? You're kidding. What year? She looked at him, saw excitement on his face for the first time and laughed. Something familiar at last. Car craziness. 1982 Porsche 930 Turbo, he said. She said. My mother used to call it his other wife. My sister and I figured it was his other kid. He laughed too and then sobered. It's getting dark, Wayne. We should go in. But she did not want to go in. Back to Lupe and Ingraham. Back to hands that made her cringe. Stephen's hands did not make her cringe any longer. I don't have a house yet, she said. He said. I have a room in Mida's house. She could not look at him now. He, she had never slept with a man. The thought of doing it now and with a stranger, even a likeable stranger, confused and frightened her. The thought of conceiving a child in this place, if you can call them children, terrified her. Back to Lupe then, he said. He put his arm around her and startled her by snatching her up and stamping off the rocks. They landed safe and unhurt amid stalks of corn. She thought she weighed at least as much as he did, but her weight did not seem to bother him. You're not a screamer, he said. Good. He set her down on her feet. Am I like your wife? She asked timidly as they walked back. No, he answered. But do you like me? Yes, he said. She looked at him uncertainly, wondering if he were laughing at her. I wish you talked more, she said. Later that night, Lupe tied Rain to a bed. We don't have bars yet, Ingraham said. You should have gone with Stephen. Shut up, Lupe told him. Tying people up is no joke. Neither is trying to send a kid to a bed with a guy she doesn't even know. I've got to find a better way. I'm sick of all this shit. Ingraham said nothing more. Rain found no comfort in Lupe's sentiment. Tired as she was, she even had to ask to go to the bathroom. And she could not sleep on her side, as was her custom. She lay miserable and sleepless, twisting her wrists in the hope of freeing at least one. The twisting hurt enough to make her stop after a while. Then she tried to reach one of her wrists with her teeth and failed. By then she was crying tears of frustration and anger. She was totally unprepared for the sudden weight across her stomach that knocked the breath out of her. This time she would have, she would have screamed if she'd been able to. She caught her breath, feeling as though she had been punched, then saw Jacob dim and shadowy in the darkness above her. You can't bite the rope, he said. Your teeth are too dull. What are you doing here, she demanded. Nothing. He stared down at her from the pose of a seated cat. I came in the window. Rain sighed, closed her eyes. I think I'm glad you're here, she whispered. Even you. Why don't you like me, he demanded. She shook her head, answered honestly because she was too tired to humour him. Because you look different and because I'm afraid of you, he said. You're afraid of me? He sounded pleased. He also sounded closer. She opened her eyes and saw that he had stretched out beside her. She tried to draw away but could not. You are afraid of me, he said gleefully. I'm going to sleep here. She could have called Lupe. She made a conscious decision not to. The boy was harmless in spite of his appearance, but he did not understand that what she feared was not him personally but what he represented. More important, she did not think she could stand to be alone again. Sometime after midnight, when she developed a headache from a lack of sleep, he awoke and, with unchildlike alertness, asked if her arms hurt. They hurt, she said, and I can't sleep, I'm so cold. To her surprise, he pulled her blankets up to her chin. 
Lycus put a rope on me, he said. They pulled me and said, heal, heal. Rain shook her head in disgust. Jacob could not help what he was. He did not deserve such treatment. Daddy hit them, and some of them died. Good for him, Rain muttered. Then she realised that she was talking about Eli, who might even right now be raping Kira. Confusion, frustration and weariness sat in heavily, and she could not stop the tears. She made no sound, but somehow the child knew. He touched her face with one of his hard little hands. He touched her face with one of his hard little hands, and when she turned her head away angrily, he turned his attention to her right wrist. wrist. What are you doing? she demanded. As though in answer, she found her wrist suddenly free. My teeth are sharp, Jacob announced. He climbed over her and started on her left wrist. In seconds, it too was free. Oh God, she said, hugging herself with aching arms and numb hands. She made herself reach out to the child. Thank you, Jacob. You taste good, he said. I thought you would. You'd smell like food. She drew her hand back quickly, heard his gleeful laugh. Let him laugh. He had freed her. How the hell a four-year-old could have teeth that so sharp that they could cut rope was beyond her. But she didn't care. If he'd been a little less strange, she would have hugged him. Something's happening outside, he said. What? What? she asked. People moving around and talking. He bounded off the bed and to the window. They're your people, he said. He leapt silently to the high window still and then jumped down the other side. Then even she heard the noise outside, a car starting, people running. They were shouting and finally what, what must ha be happening penetrated her weary mind. Her people, her father and sister. She got out of bed, taking time only to slip into the shoes and grab her pants and shirt. She threw both on over the thin gown Lupe had brought her from the luggage and went through the window. She would have climbed through it naked if she'd had to. She got out in time to see the wagoner disappearing down the mountain road, stick people in hot pursuit. Her father had left her. She took a few useless steps after them, then turned without conscious thought and ran into the opposite direction, towards the rocks that she and Stephen Kanashiro had stood on, towards the road below where her father would almost certainly be passing soon. It occurred to her as she headed for the steep incline that she could be killed. The thought did not slow her. Either way, the stick people would not tie her down again. <laughs>